The scripture lesson this morning, Genesis chapter 49. The focus of our study will be the first seven verses. I'm going to read through verse 27. Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together, that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might and the first fruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence, because you went up to your father's bed, and you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Judah, your brothers, shall praise you. you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you've gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Zebulun shall dwell at the shore of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships and his border shall be at Sidon. Issachar is a strong donkey, crouching between the sheepfolds. He saw that a resting place was good, and that the land was pleasant. So he bowed his shoulder to bear, and became a servant at forced labor. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels, so that his rider falls backward. I wait for your salvation, O Lord. Raiders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid at their heels. Asher's food shall be rich, and he shall yield royal delicacies. Naphtali is a doe let loose that bears beautiful fawns. Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring. His branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely. Yet his bow remained unmoved, his arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. By the God of your father who will help you, by the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, blessings of the breasts and of the womb, the blessings of your father are mighty beyond the blessings of the mountains, up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who was set apart from his brothers. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf in the morning devouring the prey and at evening dividing the spoil. The word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we confess that your word is truth and we ask that you would Sanctify us by your truth now. 
Direct us in your holy word by your spirit. We humbly ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. George Herbert lived from 1593 to 1633 and served as a priest in the Church of England at a time when it was thoroughly permeated with the theology and spirituality of the Reformation. Herbert is one of the greatest, if not the greatest, Christian lyric poets. It isn't just his Christianity, though, that makes him so notable. He is among the very best poets, and what makes him such a literary superstar is his imagery, his language, and his poetic form. Literary historians classify him as a metaphysical poet, one of the 17th century poets like John Donne, known for their conversational language, their philosophical explorations, their multiple levels of meaning, and above all, the unusual figures of speech known as conceits. Conceits are figures of speech whose connections to what they are describing are not immediately obvious. The poem develops them in great detail, thereby exploring the subject and imagery in depth. For example, listen to the first part of his poem entitled, The Windows. Lord, how can man preach thy eternal word? He is brittle, crazy glass. Yet in thy temple thou dost him afford this glorious and transcendent place to be a window through thy grace. Now, what is Herbert doing here? Well, he's comparing the preacher to a window through whom God's word comes, brittle as he may be. The next stanza. But when thou dost anneal in glass thy story, making thy life to shine within the holy preachers, then the light and glory more reverend grows and more doth win, which else shows waters bleak and thin. First line, anneal in glass thy story. Anneal means to heat or temper glass, to toughen it or to fuse color into it. So the imagery is God fusing his story, his word, into the preacher's life. God's life shines within the holy preacher's life. And as a result, the light and glory becomes more revered and grows and wins. Then the final stanza. Doctrine and life, colors and light in one, when they combine and mingle, bring a strong regard and awe. But speech alone doth vanish like a flaring thing, and, and in the ear not conscience ring. Doctrine, teaching, and life, manner of life are combined, colors and light in one when they combine. Now, what kind of glass is Herbert portraying? Well, stained glass. So the conceit that he's employing is that the preacher is like a stained glass window through whom the light of God's word comes with his preaching and life having a greater influence than just preaching alone. And Herbert's imagery has an effect upon the listener and is convicting if you're a preacher but expresses a profound truth in a beautiful way. You know, perhaps we can easily imagine him sitting in a church building, perhaps even where he preached and led worship week after week and was inspired by this comparison. So what's the point of this brief literary lesson? Well, simply that, that poetry is different than prose, than regular writing, and often requires a different kind of reflection or longer time for reflection. Because a poet isn't simply saying something, but seeking to say something in the best way and to make an impression through imagery that is not always readily apparent upon first glance. Here in Genesis 49, we come to the longest portion of poetry thus far encountered in the Bible, Genesis 49, 1 through 27. 
It's, it's all poetry. The blessings Jacob confers on his sons are in poetic form. And while it may take less time to read poetry because there are less words, what those words mean isn't always readily apparent. That being the case, and given the fact that some of the language here is quite difficult to understand, we're going to slow down over the next number of weeks, taking chapter 49 in several sections. Uh, we couldn't possibly do justice to the text by trying to take it all at once. We would miss too much and be the poorer for it. And as we begin our, our study, we, we do well to consider the structure, uh, particularly the order in which Jacob addresses each of his sons. Kenneth Matthew has noted a chiastic structure showing an arrangement of blessing based on the mothers to whom the sons were born. You can see that in the sermon notes given. Jacob begins with Leah and ends with Rachel, with the sons of Zilpah sandwiched in between those of Bilhah. But there's an even more detailed chiastic structure to the text which places the word spoken to Dan at the very center. We'll study Dan's blessing more fully when we get to it, but the words are prophetic of Israel's history. Dan is described as a serpent. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that his rider falls backward. I wait for your salvation, O Lord. Now, this can have both positive and negative connotations. The judge Samson is from the tribe of Dan and is cunning with all of his riddles by which he seeks to take dominion over the Philistines. But in the early part of Judges, Dan is driven out by the Canaanites, and in the latter part of Judges, Dan apostatizes. This is what it's, see, this, it seems to be, so this it seems to be describing the fate of the entire nation of Israel in what Jacob says here. They will, in the words of John the Baptizer, become a brood of vipers, and in the words of Jesus will be sons of their father, the devil. But joined with the prophecy concerning Dan is the hope of salvation. Even through this apostasy and the serpentine qualities they will have, God will bring salvation. The history recorded for us in Scripture at least makes this a plausible understanding for why the structure of the passage is the way it is. See, and then seeing this chapter in this fashion helps us not simply look at this text as a list of names of people that have something said about them, both simple and difficult to understand, but that the structure of the text itself is making a point, if even subtly. Another characteristic, characteristic for which George Herbert is famous is shaped verse. And what that means is that he wrote some of his poems to look like something on the page. Two of his most well-known examples are the altar and Easter wings. He printed the words to look like an altar for the former and a pair of wings for the latter. Now, the poems might be fine without the shape. They would certainly still contain the same words. But the shaping of the poems adds another element, makes a, a further impression upon the reader, and displays a deeper level of skill to write. So in Genesis 49, the Holy Spirit is using the structure of the text to reveal something more to us, even as we've noted on plenty of occasions before in other texts throughout Scripture. So then what do we initially encounter in the first two verses of chapter 49? Well, the gathering of the sons. Jacob calls his sons and tells them to gather themselves together, to assemble themselves. They are to come before their father and listen to what he has to say. This is the first of many instances of God's people assembling themselves, of gathering together for a purpose, particularly for the purpose of God speaking to his people. 
or for them to assemble themselves for worship. We hear similar language in Deuteronomy 33 or in Joshua when the land is to be distributed to the tribes. Here it's so that Jacob can speak to them, can tell them what will happen to them in the latter days or days to come. Now, what's that sound like? What kind of language is that? What's well, prophetic language, which we hear in other places such as Isaiah 2 and verse 2 or Daniel 10:14, Hosea 3:5. So what's going on here is that Jacob is now being set forth as a prophet. Arguably, he's been a priest as well as a king of sorts, but is now mature to be a prophet. He is 147 years old, after all. And in the book of Genesis, this puts him in company not only with Abraham, but also with Enoch and Noah. They were prophets in their days as well. Prophets are those who are part of God's counsel, who offer God their counsel. They confer with him. They are those who have consumed God's word, digested it, meditated upon it, are saturated in it, and have matured as a result. And in a manner of speaking, they speak worlds into existence. They declare what's going to be, even as Jacob does here. Think about it. Jacob has been fed, shepherded by God all of his life, according to what he says in chapter 48 and verse 15. He has wrestled with God and prevailed. He has matured so that he sits in counsel with God and God listens to him. When he speaks here, he speaks the words of God as one who has been saturated with God's word all of his life. He has been molded into the likeness of God, sits in his counsel, and now he speaks to his sons and organizes them for their continuing mission. And I want you to notice how the writer summarizes what Jacob does over the course of 25 verses. In verse 28, we read, All these are the twelve tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with a blessing suitable to him. Now, as we proceed, not only today, but in weeks to come, we come across some blessings that might not seem like blessings at all, at least how we commonly think of blessing. We often interpret blessing to mean that God gives us something or that he prospers us somehow. And blessing certainly has that aspect to it. But blessing also has to do with identity and calling. When Aaron is instructed to bless the people in number six, to pronounce the benediction upon them, what was he doing? Placing God's name on the people. And by placing God's name upon the people, they were being identified as God's priestly people with a mission and calling to be a light to the nations. Here in blessing his sons, Jacob is also identifying them and setting their calling and vocation before them. And what they've been given to do is a blessing, not only for them, but also for others. The same is true for us. Even as you depart this service each week with a blessing, a reminder of your identity and calling of your responsibility to be God's people. Well, then in verse 2, we see a parallelism. Parallel lines calling the sons to assemble and listen. And notice the use of Jacob, then Israel. We've made mention of the fact quite a few times before. And here we see it again. The sons are called by their father Jacob, literally, biologically, and by their father Israel, officially, as the head of the nation. The singular seed pictured in Jacob is becoming the seed people in the house of Israel, even the nation of Israel. So there's, there's a continuing expansion on this theme. Well, that brings us to the blessing of Reuben in verses 3 and 4. 
He's the firstborn, he's the eldest, and goes first. He receives priority of place. And in these verses, we learn as much about Jacob as we do about Reuben. Ten statements are made about him. And all the statements made in verse 3 seem pretty positive. Jacob calls him my firstborn, my might, first fruits of my strength, preeminence, excelling or outstanding in dignity and in power. So, so Reuben is, is a powerhouse and has everything going for him. Or so it seems. But then we read the first part of verse 4. Unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence. That can even read frothy as water. And the, the ESV does a good job of capturing the image. Water, especially the ocean, is unstable. And this isn't a compliment. Yes, the ocean's powerful, but it's also unstable. There's a sense in which you can't control it. So what Jacob is saying is that Reuben is unstable like the ocean, and therefore will no longer have the preeminence, that he'll no longer hold the place of a firstborn, which meant the birthright and double inheritance and the right of rule. As we observed last week in chapter 48, who received the double inheritance for the, of the firstborn? Joseph. And who is going to be given the power who will rule? Judah. Both of those things rightfully belonged to Reuben. But they were forfeit through his actions that Jacob goes on to describe. But before we examine that, I want you to consider some interesting connections that we do well to make with Genesis 49 and the epistle of James in the New Testament. Why James? Well, James is the English translation for Jacob on a number of occasions in the, New, in the Greek New Testament. Now, why? Well, apparently it has to do with corruptions of the name translating from Latin to French to English. But listen to how the epistle of James begins. It's a bit more of a literal reading. Jacob, a slave of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, or to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations. So, James is really the letter from Jacob to the early churches. And what is one of the early exhortations that James gives, that Jacob gives? If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. But that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. That sounds a lot like the description of Reuben, doesn't it? Reuben was powerful, but unstable. And after he made a power play for his, his father's authority by sleeping with Bilhah, his father's concubine, we see that Reuben becomes ineffective, even impotent in a manner of speaking. He wasn't able to protect Joseph and return him to Jacob before being sold uh, into slavery, before Joseph was sold into slavery. When he volunteered to protect Benjamin, he offered the lives of his two sons as collateral if he should fail. That's not the mark of stability. That's power lacking control. So Reuben loses his preeminence. And finally, we know what Jacob thought of Reuben's actions all the way back in chapter 35, verse 22. Jacob says, you mounted your father's bed. Notice he's speaking directly to Reuben. And as a result of this action, he defiled it. And then the latter part of verse 4, notice the change to the third person. He mounted my couch. Now scholars squabble about whether or not uh, that reads as second or third person. But the better evidence is for Jacob switching to the third person. 
giving the impression that he, he turns his attention to the other brothers and declares to them what Reuben has done. He went up to my couch. Interestingly enough, the language of defilement will be later used in relation to Israel's sacrificial system. So if something has been defiled, that means it's been made unholy. We have to understand that as the firstborn, Reuben should have taken over the priestly duties. He should have been like Jacob's deacon, learning, studying, serving in order to take over Jacob's position. But now his act of defilement has disqualified him for that position, and he's replaced by Joseph, particularly Ephraim and Manasseh, as we studied last week. And just in case you need further proof that that's what's taking place here, 1 Chronicles 5, verses 1 and 2 states it clearly. The sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, for he was the firstborn. But because he defiled his father's couch, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel, so that he could not be enrolled as the oldest son. Though Judah became strong among his brothers, and a chief came from him, yet the birthright belonged to Joseph. And as we hear and read this, we might be inclined to think that Reuben is done for. That's all over him. He, he, he blew it big time, and he's not worth anything to the Lord or Israel any longer. But the fact that Reuben finds a place within Israel and eventually inherits land east of the Jordan, Reuben, while losing his initial position, is restored by grace. Well, that brings us to verses 5 and 7 and what Jacob has to say about Simeon and Levi, his second and third born sons. With Reuben displaced, they're next in line. But as we see and what we already know, they're seemingly not going to fare much better. Jacob also speaks ten lines uh, to them, five pairs of lines. In verse 5, Jacob states, Simeon and Levi are brothers. He's not simply stating a biological fact, nor is Jacob excluding the other brothers in the statement, but is basically saying they're brothers in crime, if you will. And as you know, the comments that Jacob makes center upon the episode with the Shechemites back in chapter 34 and you'll remember that Simeon and Levi used circumcision. They used God's sign of the covenant as a cover for their personal revenge because of what happened to their sister Dinah. So they used their religion. They used holy things as a pretext for wicked violence. And because the Shechemites were circumcised, Simeon and Levi murdered brothers. Furthermore, their murder of the Shechemites wasn't proportional to the raping of Dinah. Their anger went too far. James chapter 1 and verse 19 states, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. The anger of Simeon and Levi was anything but righteous. Now the Hebrew of the last part of verse 5 is difficult to interpret. The, the ESV reads, Weapons of violence are their swords. Another possible translation is, Simeon and Levi, brothers, articles of violence are their circumcision knives. Again, the language is, is difficult to navigate, but we can at least get a sense of the point Jacob is making. And their abuse, their murder of the Shechemites is resoundingly condemned. So then in verse 6, what does Jacob declare? Let my soul come not into their counsel. O my glory, be not joined to their company. Simeon and Levi have also lost a privileged position. And essentially, Jacob is saying that he doesn't trust them. Their actions aren't those of maturity, but immaturity. Would you trust someone who is hot-tempered and violent? 
Proverbs 22, 24 and 25, we're taught. Make no friendship with a man given to anger, nor go with a wrathful man, lest you learn his ways and entangle yourself in a snare. Jacob shows kingly wisdom, and Simeon and Levi have come under under judgment because of their anti-kingly qualities. They're not fit to rule either. They killed men in anger. They didn't render a right judgment. They didn't carry out justice as is fitting of kings. And therefore, they're disqualified too. The latter part of verse 6 is also debated. And in their willfulness, they hamstrung an ox. What does this mean? That they had such little regard for life that they made oxen completely useless by cutting the tendons to their hamstrings. Well, no, that's not what Jacob is referring to. In fact, they took the livestock from the Shechemites for themselves and to have hamstrung them would have been utterly foolish. Also, Jacob is clear to say they hamstrung an ox. It's singular in the text, even though our English translations often render it in the plural. So what could he mean? An ox. Well, the best understanding seems to be that Jacob is speaking in reference to himself as the ox that was hamstrung. Oxen represent men in Scripture and are symbolic of the priesthood. Think of the first face of the cherubim. We can see this from the twelve oxen holding up the labor before the temple. Paul talking about paying ministers because the scripture says you shall not muzzle the ox that treads the grain. Remember that Jacob had established worship in and around the land of Shechem according to Genesis 33, 18-20. He was seeking to evangelize these people. Simeon and Levi caused those efforts to be hindered. Even more in Genesis 34, 20, a word that sounds exactly like the Hebrew word for hamstrung is used to speak about how they have troubled him by their actions and brought disrepute on them from their neighbors. So Jacob is making a direct connection to that incident and the trouble they caused as a result. Therefore, these two brothers also come under judgment, even under a curse. Verse 7, Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. And you can hear the doubling of language here because they are two brothers. Cursed be their fierce anger and their cruel wrath. Therefore, I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Now, clearly, Jacob's words point forward to the future when Israel as a nation has inherited the land of Canaan. Don't miss that subtle point. And precisely what Jacob declared happened. Simeon gets absorbed into the tribe of Judah, which we read about in Joshua 19 and Judges 1. And of course, the Levites don't have any inheritance of land, but are scattered throughout. But be sure to notice that even in this punishment, there is mercy to be found as there is repentance and faithfulness. The fact that Simeon is incorporated into Judah means that Simeon has a part with the kingly tribe. In 2 Chronicles 15, 8 and 9, we find them faithfully following the word of God and coming to join Asa in the southern kingdom when he restored the altar. Levi's zeal turned to righteous zeal at Sinai when the people constructed the golden calf. When Moses came down from the mountain and saw what was happening, we read in Exodus 32, 26, Then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. Then at that time they were instructed, Go and kill their brothers for the sake of righteousness. They did so. Because of this, the tribe of Levi became the priestly tribe, replacing the whole house of Israel in their specific priestly duties. Remember, all of Israel came out of Egypt as God's firstborn son and they were to be let go by Pharaoh so that they may worship. Well, there's a sense of when they lose their privilege and so they're replaced by the Levites. 
We read in Numbers 3, Behold, I have taken the Levites from among the people of Israel instead of every firstborn who opens the womb among the people of Israel. The Levites shall be mine, for all the firstborn are mine. On the day that I struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I consecrated for my own all the firstborn in Israel, both of man and of beast. They shall be mine. I am the Lord. So yes, Levi is rejected here in Genesis 49, but through God's grace, his descendants take up the priestly duties in Israel in the house of God and serve a special role as those included among the people of God. That The curse becomes blessing. So what, what further exhortation and encouragement is there to be found here in these, these opening verses of Genesis 49? Well, first, power without self-control leads to destruction. Proverbs 25, 28 declares, A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. Self-control acts as a guard, is a source of protection. And without it, then you're vulnerable to anything. If you can't control your own actions and attitudes, then you will eventually give in to temptation, which leads to sin, which leads to destruction. Reuben, Simeon, and Levi all evidence a profound lack of self-control. And it leads not only to their own self-destruction, but also to the destruction of others. Think about how often a lack of self-control is related to anger. You get mad. You you fly off the handle. You yell and scream at someone or you lash out against him or her in some way. Maybe you even throw something. It could very well be that in your anger you ended up hurting something or you ended up hurting someone who wasn't even the object of your anger to begin with. Even if it was in a game, you got angry, wildly kicked or threw a ball and ended up hurting someone else in the process. A lack of self-control leads to destruction, to the harming of others. And if you're lacking in self-control, then you yourself are open to all forms of attack. You're unprotected. That's what Solomon is saying here. Parents, this is why self-control is so important to teach and cultivate in your children. And children, this is why your parents instruct and discipline you regarding self-control. Why you should pray for it and seek after it. Learn to govern yourself. Learn to rule yourself according to God's word. And you will not only be protected from sin, but you'll also prosper. You'll be blessed. You'll be the happier for it. You know, remember, as Uncle Ben told Peter Parker, Spider-Man, you know, with great power comes great responsibility. You know, just because you have the power to do something, just because you can do something, doesn't mean you ought to. As God's people, we need to be aware of the fact that our actions affect other people and our children need to be aware of that and not be self-centered and self-serving. And it's, parents, it's for you to model self-control to them through your own life, through words and actions that they might aspire to such a life as well. And related to this, and I'm speaking more to the men and young men, if and when you give yourself over to sexual sin in what you set before your eyes and what you entertain your thoughts or in lustful actions in which you might engage, it leads to you becoming impotent. And the word impotent at its root just means no power or strength. When you give yourself to sexual sin, you're giving away your God-given power and strength that's meant to be used for the purposes of Christ and His kingdom. Now, you're rendering yourself sterile, not in a strictly physiological sense, but in life. You're weakening your ability to properly function in relationships and in society. This principle and warning is echoed by Solomon and King Lemuel and Proverbs. You know, don't give your strength away. That which is the glory of young men. 
And as we find ourselves in the midst of an emasculated society, and in plenty of instances led by emasculated men, then it's all the more vital for the church to declare, as Paul did in the closing chapter of his first letter to the Corinthians, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all that you do be done in love. Second, words that our faith certainly needs to hear. Where sin abounds, there does grace much more abound. Now, Genesis 49 is not the last word for Reuben, Simeon, and Levi. God is not done with them yet, despite the severity of their sins. And that being the case, then each and every one of us should find great encouragement in the grace of God that isn't thwarted by our failures, our missing the mark, time and time again. No, God restores us in Christ, and He's glad to restore us again and again as we confess and repent of our sins and believe again and again in the unfailing stores of His grace and love. Each and every one of us has failed and will fail. We will lack self-control. We will sin. But because of Christ's life, death, and resurrection, that sin doesn't have the last word. And there is hope in an ever-forgiving Father whose love for His children never fails. How do you know this to be true? Well, because God tells you it's true in His Word and because it's declared and demonstrated to you each and every week as, as you gather for worship. And it's here that you can be renewed in your courage and strength. God's grace comes to you in word and sacrament. You hear His promises. You hear Him declare that you're not guilty, that your sins are forgiven on account of the atoning work of Christ. And then you get to touch and taste that grace in bread and wine. Further tokens to embolden your faith and the life to which you've been called to live in obedience to Him. And then finally, He blesses you. He places His name upon you again. That name that you received at your baptism. Identifying you as belonging to Him. And by which you're reminded of the glorious calling that you've been given as part of the church. The priestly people of God in service to Him and to the world. And such glorious truth requires glorious words. It requires poetry. And so it is. The benediction is a poem the Lord speaks each week. His parting words, imparting blessing. As you go forth as those through whom His light shines, as stained glass windows portraying His glory and grace. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we again thank you for your word, for its richness, for its profound truth, for its simplicity, and and for its glory. And indeed, may we revel in your grace this day as we consider uh, the story of Jacob blessing his sons, and as we consider each of their lives and their callings. May we also examine our own hearts and lives, and so look to follow you all the more fully and faithfully. Strengthened by your spirit and directed by your holy word. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.